one and we are recording with mr richard rhodes the part two to the part two last week we did part two of energy and in a beautiful poetic synchronicity you had a power outage and and we had to cut it off and it's normally i would be upset about a power outage interrupting a podcast but that was just that was just wonderful <laughs> mr rhodes please introduce yourself for all the new listeners say again please introduce yourself for all the new listeners oh, sure hi my name is richard rhodes i'm a writer my best known book is probably one called the making of the atomic bomb which won a pulitzer prize and a national book award and has been continually in print ever since happily for the author who needs whatever little annuities he can get course of his lifetime. So I've written many other books as well, but that's the one I think that's partly the focus of our discussions. Another more recent book called Energy that covers a lot of the ground that you and I have been talking about. And so we kind of uh, divulged last week about the, you know, the multiple uh, important aspects of of renewable energy and continual energy supplies being at geopolitical pressures, which we're seeing now with Russia and Ukraine, with um, not being dependent on foreign nations just as a means of independence, of climate change, and of really, I mean, the one that probably affects most of us the most is just just our standard of living. I have an air conditioner on with some light, you know, with some lights. That's just the way that I live. I like to take a hot shower, right? I have a refrigerator. I have ice. Very simple things that we maybe don't think about all the time, but yeah. the, and I think what we both agreed upon last time was the, the folly that we are not utilizing nuclear energy orders of magnitude more than we are. And as you just said, before we started recording, there are a couple things you want to touch on about nuclear energy in the hopes of clearing up some misconceptions. So if you would please take it away. I will. And then after that, there's a brand new discovery in the fusion world that you, I know you're interested in nuclear fusion as a down the road way to make even better, cleaner energy. And we can talk about that as well. It's really quite, quite exciting. Wonderful. So there are several things that people always bring up uh, that that is part of their fear of nuclear energy. There are often things that have been uh, argued by anti-nuclear activist programs. Some of them are just obvious historical facts. For example, the, uh, the nuclear damage at uh, Chernobyl, the Russian reactor that exploded in 1986, the worst nuclear accident, I would say, in, in history. And people bring up Chernobyl because they, they're concerned that nuclear reactors might do that over here or somewhere in their backyard. So let's be clear, the reactor that was built at Chernobyl was a different design from the ones that we build for power in the United States and in Europe as well, in the West, let's call it. The different design came from the strange fact that ever since the communists took over Russia in 1917, the, their 
theory about how you build industry has been that everything needs to be dual purpose. That is to say, if you're going to build a factory to make automobiles, or let's say trucks, it has to be something in their policy that can be converted rather quickly into something that could make tanks. So military as well as civilian use. It's understandable. They were they were involved in multiple wars over the years. And, and it's just simply, I think, an example of the focus of the former Soviet Union and, and Putin's Russia on a feeling of being beleaguered and needing to be ready to fight another war at any time, or in Putin's case, to start one, uh, unfortunately. Therefore, the reactors that they built for commercial nuclear power were of a design that allowed them to be fairly easily converted to breed plutonium, one of the two types of heavy metals that can be used to make nuclear weapons. That required them to build a reactor that had a basic and fundamental design flaw. The, the uranium in the reactor was surrounded by blocks of graphite, which is something like what we find in pencil lead. And it's an efficient mechanism for slowing neutrons down and therefore improving the possibility of efficient chain reactions, which is what makes the energy in a nuclear reactor. Uh, they still needed something to cool the reactor because nuclear fission generates a great deal of heat. So there are also channels for water. And water absorbs neutrons. It's a poison, if you will. Okay, so think about a reactor where if you take away the water, it actually goes faster rather than slower. In fact, it runs away. And that's what happened at Chernobyl. There was an accident. I've forgotten exactly the details, but the water drained off or boiled away, actually. And as a result, in just a few fractions of a second, the reactor sped up to more than 100 times its normal power with no coolant. So, of course, it exploded. It wasn't a nuclear explosion. It was a heat explosion. And it blew the and the reactor was not confined inside of a giant container of steel and concrete as our reactors are for safety reasons and also to shield the, the radiation and keep it out of the environment. But in fact, just had what's called a biologic shield, enough material around it to prevent the people who worked there from being irradiated. I've, some people may remember the photograph from that accident. There was a giant lid about the size of a, of, a, of a shopping center floor that was actually blown yeah. into the air and then came back down and tilted at an angle and lay there on top of that re exposed reactor. And the graphite, graphite is coal, basically good the best kind of coal is mostly graphite. So the coal, the graphite began to burn. And there was really nothing that anyone could do in the way of dumping enough material onto that 
massive reactor. It was so big. It was a bad design in another way, too. It was so big. You know, the Russians love to build big stuff. It was so big that, that it actually had separate chain reactions going in different parts. And according to the people who operated it, who testified later, they always just barely had this thing under control, like moving control rods in and out. Uh, but it was always on the edge of running away anyway. So when it lost its coolant and it blew up, there was this massive graphite that was was ignited by the by the explosion. And there wasn't anything really anybody could do to stop it from burning. It burned entirely away that tons and tons of graphite. That's why it burned for 10 or 15 days afterwards. And of course, in it was all of this uranium, which had been highly irradiated and was very, very radioactive. And it melted down and it burned up and clouds of this stuff went up into the air. It was a truly disastrous disaster. But number one, we don't design reactors that way. Nobody in his right mind would build a reactor that would have this, this what's called a negative void coefficient, meaning if you, if you take the water away, it goes faster. And even had we done so, we did during the Second World War. That's how we made the plutonium for the first bombs. But because of the dual purpose thing, these, this design of reactor was classified as military secret. Mm. There had actually been previous runaways with this type of reactor in the old Soviet Union. They hadn't been quite as disastrous as this one. They killed 15 people in this control room of another reactor in another city some years before. But because it was a military secret, the normal learning curve where you learn from one machine how to run a similar machine by passing from one to the other, the information was cut off. The information was not shared. So every time a new one of these reactors was built, the people who were operating them had to reinvent the wheel. They had to learn it all over again. All of these these mistakes, and they are basically mistakes in management and in engineering, were unique to this country and this time. And I think I can sum it up most efficiently by saying when Gorbachev really drilled down into what had happened at Chernobyl, he said, well, then the whole system is corrupt and we're going to have to change it all. It was crucial to his understanding that his country had reached a point where it was destroying itself in a way, economically because of this cockamamie theory of, of capitalism, or rather of communist operation of government, but also with things like bad design and dangerous situations. So anyone who thinks that Chernobyl is an example of where nuclear power is, should think about this these facts because that's not the way the rest of the world runs its nuclear power systems so that's one uh then let's go to fukushima because here we had a different problem but also fundamentally a management and engineering problem why did the fukushima reactors melt down it turns out that to run a reactor 
you need an electrical supply. And you would think you'd take it from the reactor itself, but that's not a very efficient way to do it because the reactor isn't always on and so forth and so on. I think there are probably inconsistencies in the kind of electrical output as well. I don't know if you know how the electric cars are designed, but I have a leaf and I was surprised to learn that not only does it have this massive battery that runs the motors, it has a regular car battery as well to run the, the air conditioning. <laughs> I don't know that. Why did they do that? I guess because it's really hard to convert direct current from the whatever it is, 400 volts of the bat, big battery down to the little 12 volt charge that you need for to run the accessories on your car. So rather than put in the elaborate systems that you have to have to convert to to transform electricity from one uh, voltage to another, they simply use an old system that's been around forever, which is the regular car battery. Okay, with reactors, power reactors, the electricity that's used to run the control room and operate the rods that go in and out of the reactor and all is pulled out of the regular electrical grid that we all draw from, which may be manufactured by that reactor or may be manufactured by a coal plant down the road. Who knows? But we plug it into the wall. Yeah. Right. So, but since it's possible that the, but since you don't want to lose electricity to control your reactor, they needed backup just as we need backups when a power goes out. I lived in Connecticut during one of its big hurricane seasons and we didn't have any electrical backup and we were out of electricity for five days because everything blew down. Uh, we learned what it was like to live in the 18th century. You know, you go <laughs> by the window in the morning to read the newspaper by light. <laughs> But fortunately, there was a Chinese restaurant in town that was operating on, on gas to, to, to heat the wax. We all went there to buy our food. The place was filled with greasy oil smoke from the cooking, and they didn't have any fans, so they couldn't blow it away. But they fed the whole town. <laughs> and so... A backup system. Well, what's the backup? Well, there are several layers of backup, but the one we're concerned with was the ultimate one, which is they have some big diesel electric generators that are inside the plant and that are designed to kick on automatically if the power goes out. So you can continue to operate the control room and presumably shut down the reactor if you're dealing with, with uh, earthquakes and, and, uh, tsunamis and all those things, you probably want to shut everything down. And that's happened many times in the United States when when there has been, let's say, a hurricane or blowing through. Reactors have just quietly been shut down. And they just sit there. Remember, they're surrounded by these massive, yeah. real massive containment domes, so they're very safe. However, for reasons I still do not understand, the people who designed the Fukushima reactors put the diesel generators in the basement, not up on the third floor where they should have been well above any possible flooding, but down in the basement where, where had a, a tsunami blown through, they could easily have estimated that it would not be a safe place to put your diesel generators. And in fact, and I didn't believe this for a while, I read about it, I remember online, 
and I tracked it down because it sounds apocryphal. But up on the hills above the Fukushima reactors, there's a stone that was put there in 800 AD that says, we had a tsunami that came all the way up to here. So be careful about what you build down below this point because it's going to get flooded. In any case, the Fukushima reactors uh, melted down because they lost their control systems. And they lost their control systems because they put the generators, the backup generators, in the wrong part of the building. But once again, you really can't blame nuclear power for that. Yeah. You can blame the engineers who designed the plant. Curiously, there was another plant similar in design to Fukushima, closer to the epicenter of the earthquake that caused the tsunami, that did have its generators in the right place. It shut down as it should have normally and, and survived the, the, the event with, without any problem. So... Of course, you need good engineering in any large energy system. You're talking about a lot of heat and a lot of material, and and it's not something you play with. It took a long time for the United States to learn that lesson, too. We were pretty cavalier about the kind of reactors we built until Three Mile Island. Another accident which people think was horrendous and which caused no release, significant release of radiation outside the plant itself. But because of Three Mile Island, the first real nuclear accident in nuclear power in the United States, we backfitted all the power reactors in the country at the cost of several billion dollars. I mean, the, the guys who work in them say, boy, they gold-plated everything in here. And, and then another thing we have that people don't think about that is really a kind of software benefit of this country. All of the re reactor operators are most of the reactor operators in the United States today. The guys who sit in the control room and run the machine were trained in the nuclear Navy. They learned to operate nuclear hmm. submarine reactors and, and nuclear uh, uh, aircraft carrier reactors. And the, the, in the tradition of Admiral Hyman Rickover, who built the first commercial power reactor in the United States, they, uh, they were trained to a very high level of concern for safety. So that also has benefited nuclear power in the United States. Those are the issues about reactors themselves. The other thing that I always hear about from people uh, that they worry about because they've been told they should and that is, well, what are we going to do with all the nuclear waste? So when a reactor is run for a couple of years, the fuel is removed. At that point, about 90% of the fuel is still just regular reactor-grade uranium. And there's about something between 5 and 10% that is what's called fission products, the results of of uranium atoms splitting, which produces all sorts of radioactive stuff. Some of it very short-lived and therefore intense. Some of it very long-lived and therefore not so intense. In the United States, just because there's so much uranium available in the world, fuel available in the world, we call that waste. The French call it something to recycle and reuse. You can recycle it fairly simply and pull out the fission products that that will be back to the level of their natural ore within about 800 years, which is a time span humans can handle. 
and they put that part away and they take the rest, which is fuel, good fuel, put it back in their reactors. So I'm simplifying a little bit, but not very much. So this so-called waste, ideally, we should just keep it sitting around as we presently are until such a time as the fission products degrade down to a level where they're not so much of a problem and then pull them out and reuse the fuel. When we first started building commercial power in the United States after the Second World War, for reasons I've never understood, you and I talked about this before, the government thought there wasn't enough uranium in the world to build more than about 75 reactors. I still do not understand why they thought that. <laughs> they did think that. There's, of course, a vast supply of uranium in South Africa, but simply by giving awards to prospectors in the United States, the the incredible richness of the Colorado Plateau as a source of uranium, and more than that, Canada, which has enormous amounts of uranium, uh, were discovered and properly rewarded and set out. And so now there's a lot of fuel available in the world. Doesn't mean we shouldn't just store this stuff, but whether we do or not, we're going to have to deal with the waste. So how do we deal with the waste? <coughs> Excuse me. There is, in fact, a, a waste depository almost ready to open in Finland. Uh, this is one example of a type of permanent waste storage. What you do basically is drill deep underground into some kind of, of uh, bed of solid material that has, hasn't changed in millions of years. And in Finland, it's, it's actually plant, it's actually granite, solid continental <laughs> granite. They've drilled down about 500 meters below ground and they've stored the waste there in a retrievable format. They, they dig a tunnel, they drill some holes for fuel canisters to fit into. The fuel canisters are surrounded with a kind of clay that absorbs water uh, and in case there's any water leakage anywhere. And then they're simply popped into these holes and left there. And of course, checked from time to time. Their plan is to fill that, that space up. And if they don't want to recycle the fuel in a hundred years, then they'll just seal the whole thing up and put the dirt back in and close it up. It's on an island actually off the coast of Finland in the Baltic. There's nothing else on the island except this and a power reactor. So it's a very isolated waste site. We have a site in the United States in southern New Mexico, fairly near Carlsbad. I've, I've been in this site. I've been down into it, and it's really quite a marvel. There is a bed of pure crystalline salt that's about two kilometers thick underground, about a thousand feet below ground. It's the... It's the dried up remains of a huge shallow ocean that used to occupy the whole central part of the United States. This bed of salt runs from southern New Mexico all the way up into southwestern Kansas. It's enormous and it's thick. It's two kilometers thick. So what we've done is drill down one kilometer into this bed of pure solid salt. And let me just say, obviously, there's no water flowing through it or the salt. Yeah. Would be yeah. So we know it's dry. Drill down halfway down through this bed of salt and start digging simple tunnels 
using standard tunneling equipment out into the bed of salt and then side rooms, galleys they're called, and in the side rooms, holes built, dr drilled into the salt where you can stick a barrel of, of, of low-level waste. That's what's being collected right now, meaning clothing that's been, been covered with some radioactive material in the course of its use, things like that. Because the state of New Mexico, despite being the birthplace of nuclear power and nuclear weapons, unaccountably doesn't allow the government to <laughs> put any commercial nuclear waste in this superb waste depository. Uh, it tells you just how frightened Americans are of, of yeah. nuclear power, yeah. that they, they don't. So I went down into this, it's called the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, an innocuous little name. Uh, whip as it's known i went down there with the guy who ran the thing for many years for the government and we walked around and i looked at all these things interestingly the isolation of the material is so excellent that there was this little shed built down there with some guys scientists working in it and i asked them what they were doing and they said we're studying solar neutrinos well, neutrinos. Jeez, oh, yeah, because that's what you have to do with neutrinos. Is you have to have an insanely that's isolated like cavern. Radiation sources are blocked. Yeah, you could just get these very elusive particles that pass right through the earth yeah. without ever touching anything. They were studying solar neutrinos, and they said if if this experiment works out, we may well get Nobel prizes for it. I don't. So, I don't. so the salt works. <laughs> so anyway, but the point is, right here in the middle of all of this so-called waste, there was this little cabin with these guys measuring solar neutrinos. I think it tells you just how how what a good place that is, and how isolated it is from the rest of the universe that they could do something like this down there. Now the problem with WIP is that it's irreversible. Because, and this is the curious thing about this giant bed of salt, salt actually is sort of in this form, in crystalline form, is kind of a slow-moving liquid. Mm -hmm. and, you know, they cut the, the big passageways where the trucks go square. But by the time I saw it, which was only maybe five or ten years into its life, the sides had already started bowing inward as the salt slowly crept to fill any voids that are formed in it. Yeah. So when you get these barrels stuffed away in these galleys and backfill the galleys with salt, everything gets crushed together into one solid mass, including any waste that's stored. Does There's it crush no the barrels? Sorry? Does it crush the barrels too? Does it crush nope. them? Just... It breaks them open. Oh yeah, sure. Every All of that. Oh. But it basically incorporates it into the massive material. Now, they had had an accident there when I, not long before I was there. One of the barrels had caught fire. And the question was, what was going on? And of course, there was a great hue and cry about this place is not safe, da da da. Uh, what happened is the waste that's collected at a laboratory like the Los Alamos laboratory, where they do bomb research is put into some of the waste is put into these barrels and it's it's then packed with uh, uh, with river clay, just loose material. In fact, what they normally use because it's easily accessible is cat litter. 
Now, somewhat, because I guess regular cat litter wasn't available, these stories don't sound true, but they are, had bought organic cat litter. And organic cat litter turned out to be a flammable material rather than just river clay. And that was the barrel that caught fire. So what's the lesson here? Let's get rid of nuclear power. No, don't buy organic cat, cat litter. Now, <laughs> There, yeah, we're going to be accused of uh, of shilling for big cat litter. <laughs> so, once again, if the state of uh, New Mexico, as I'm sure it will eventually, removed its restriction on what could be put into this superb place, and we were prepared to either recycle our waste or just dump it, which would be a great waste of good uranium, because with recycling uranium, we have thousands and thousands of years of fuel available in the around the Earth. Uh, but without recycling it, we only have maybe five or 600. So it's obviously going to be good in the very long run to recycle. But setting that aside for a moment, as a place to put nuclear waste, this place is absolutely outstanding just as the Finnish location is. And I think eventually as time goes on and people perhaps begin to realize the real benefits of nuclear power in a world where global warming is only one of the problems as we've discussed. And the other problem is that there are millions of people on earth who are still living uh, on, on, on a few bucks a day and need to have a better life and want a better life and can only get a better life by everybody producing more energy. Let's face it, energy is life, as the, as, the new, as the energy people like to say, but it's true. You can track human lifespan in terms of how much per capita energy is available to a given population. And it takes about 3,000 kilowatt hours a year to, for a person to live to 70 on a national basis or an international basis. And the what used to be called the third world is now has gotten its population expansion under control and is beginning to see an increase in in uh, income primarily driven by again seems curious but it's true driven primarily by the education of women who 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 realize who who in the course of the whole society improving its public health don't have to produce so many babies in order to have maybe just one survive to adulthood and thus the population goes down and thus the pressure from population goes down and people begin to find ways to and women's education helps along the way and society slowly get improved incomes and eventually they hope, we hope, anyone with a moral bone in their body has to hope that all of us throughout the world will be able to live at least a decent middle class life in some future point. And that takes energy. So we've got the problem of energy producing global warming on the one hand, and the problem on the other hand of people of the world needing more energy. So how do you solve that? Clearly by finding ways to produce energy that don't contribute to global warming. And we can go into all those arguments I think we already have, but one of the best ways because it is so reliable, because it produces full time more than 90% of the time is nuclear power. 
Yeah, and it's <clears throat> I didn't know about that salt bed. What what got me laughing is just it's just the scales of time we kind of don't really ever consider, right? Just the idea that there there was an ocean in the middle of the United States. It's just it just yeah. boggles. It's one thing like I want, and this has nothing to do with nuclear power. Just again, just kind of amazement is like I went to college at the University of Georgia, and you could go you could go into the woods and you'd find all these old. Uh, huge like stone structures and it's where like railroads used to be and you can see like you're like oh this is this is like you know this was used in the civil war and that's mind-boggling that's like 150 years old i just that's what got me laughing it's like there used to be an ocean in the middle of the united states just <clears throat> yeah um but i think that also kind of answers my question which is a admittedly a, a, a childish question i've always had which i know that somewhat of like the answer is why we just don't launch this stuff into escape velocity into the great trash can all around us the universe and that's because you mess up one launch and you're throwing condensed nuclear fuel into the jet stream you're going to make castle bravo look like a look like a walk in the park so that that much makes sense and it's also you bring it up in energy is that as much as we have to look after future generations so that we're not handing them a, a, a steaming pile of shit for a planet is, but you also, there's some, there's some give and take. You, you also can moderately expect in two to three generations that their technological capabilities are going to be greatly advanced. Now you can't just, you can't use that as a blank check to say they're just going to fix everything, but you know, we have to, I have to look back at, you know, what my grandparents grew up with versus now here I am with a, you know, I've interviewed a guy that walked on the moon and I have a phone that's a hundred times stronger than the vehicle he was in, you know, and it's like, and what do I use it for? Sending memes. Like it's, you know, so there has, there's a certain level of expectation that we do get to write off an amount of this to future generations that kind of you guys can deal with this but even if they don't let's just assume that we fall into the dark ages tomorrow let's just say it happens it's kind of it's still kind of okay because if it's embedded in this salt tomb or if it's embedded in that that continental granite it doesn't really matter if if no one takes care of it because it's in its own it's in its own egyptian sarcophagus if you will exactly now i've never understood people who worry about the waste a thousand years from now, what what did they think is going to happen? Yeah. It's going to blow up like a like a hydrogen bomb. Maybe some seeps into the water supply. Uh, if there is a water supply. You know? <laughs> yeah, the yeah, best case scenario, it seeps into a water. That means we still got running water. But you're absolutely right about about discounting a little bit in terms of the future. It's something that actually are actuarial people do. Because they do assume an improvement in knowledge and in, and in science and in technology. So, and as you say, we have all sorts of things. Whoever imagined that, that we'd be carrying around supercomputers in our pockets and dropping them on the floor and picking them up and throwing them away. Yeah. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. Even in my lifetime, I was born in 1937. You know what was introduced for the first time in history in 1937? Fluorescent light. 
It was introduced at the World's Fair. It was developed in 37. It was introduced at the World's Fair in 38. And I, I could give you a, millions of examples like that. It's really the, the, the blossoming of science and technology since before the Second World War has truly been beyond imagining almost. And it's going to be even more so. It's accelerating. Yeah, yeah. It's more rapidly, which is one of the reasons we're also kind of befuddled when some ancient plague arrives out of the darkness of the of the forest and knocks us all back on our heels. <laughs> and no one and everyone's I mean, the American response, which is, go away, I don't like you. I'm going to take off my mask and go out and party. It's really quite amazing that people have that response, but it's a tribute to how healthy we are compared to the way people used to be. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a like technological hubris. I was going to say you you mentioned you said 1937. I just look at my short life in 2019. I listened to Making of the Atomic Bomb. Later that year, I listened to Dark Sun, and now I'm interviewing you and or you're interviewing me and we're texting back and forth. Like to me, that's my own technological. You know, normally you read a book and it's like I remember reading a book and it's like no, I listened to it, reached out to the guy and have established a friendship with him. Like that's technologically possible. You couldn't do that in in 1910. Oh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You'd read a book and you'd you'd read about the author and it's like a mythical creature. The English actually had pneumatic tube mail in, in the turn of the century of the 20th century. I mean, in 1900. And you could write a note to your dear friend, uh, Sir, Sir John, who lived across London and drop it in the mail and say, would you like to take tea at four o'clock this afternoon? What? Mail would be delivered by, by pneumatic tube. I don't know if you've ever seen a pneumatic tube. They used to be in all the departments. All, all the, and then the banks, right? You still have them. Oh, yeah. Did they still have them? Yeah. Yeah. Put this in this little thing and put it in a tube and close it in a vacuum. <laughs> Sucks it up to some other part of the building. They had that all over London. Really? <laughs> so communicate almost as rapidly as we do now. But, of course, they didn't have full full color and everything else. Yeah. That- yeah it's like steampunk text messaging. Fascinated with old technologies, mostly because people people think that Jesus, how could those people have built the pyramids? Yeah, those big rocks. <laughs> there was oh. just just an aside. There was a an engineer a few years ago who put onto YouTube uh, uh, evidence for how you can move a big stone all by yourself. And basically what he showed was that if you can get a big stone on top of a couple of smaller stones, square-faced, you can move them the way we've all learned to move big objects just a little bit at a time. And then you move the the bottom stone, and then you move the big stone a little farther. And with that, you and a few other people, you can move anything you want including the Egyptian pyramids, right? So, So it wasn't aliens. (laughs) <laughs> don't 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 rob me of that of that i love that conspiracy but no right it's you look think about that and then it's also we one thing we kind of discount is like it also doesn't matter when when you're a living god and you can just order 10 million people to work to death that also really helps you just yeah just go work um yeah no i i love i love old technology i love uh i love i don't know if you've ever heard of the term retro futurism but it's no it's, i, I I know about the steampunk. Yeah. 
really great. I actually have a steampunk keyboard here that I kind of get hooked up. Yeah, it 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 is kind of steampunkish in that it's um it's a uh, it's well it's a retro take on the future. And my favorite one, and it's it's a phenomenon I actually think is pretty fascinating is there was a an article published in 1900 and it's all like watercolors but it's predictions for the year 2000 and at first glance it's it's hilarious you see how wrong they are sure. the more you look at it it's startling how accurate it is and I'll and I'll explain it it's they have you know they had just started skyscrapers in like 1880 1890 in chicago so the concern was like how are we going to have firefighters well by the year 2000 you're going to have firefighters with these weird steampunk leather wings and they're going to fly up and you're laughing at it and you're going that's not true there's no way there but what were they actually if you really boil it down what was it actually they're talking about the ability to fight fire from the air sure how do how do we fight forest fires right right okay you look at another one where it's like um uh it was um like students would put on these caps and the caps had like a copper wire that went to basically what looked like a giant almost like a mulcher like a like a wood chipper and it showed the teacher just throwing books in the in the wood chipper and oh. you're like that's silly okay uh, but like ultimately what is what what is what is audible sure sure I, it's that's- it's yeah. the mass absorption of information at a whim. What do I want? I want to download a book on the history of the Native Americans. I have it, and now I play it, and I am absorbing it. There's a bunch. It's a. It was like a school bus wrapped in like this weird form, like plastic, and it's like it's it's driving around on the bottom of the ocean, and it's like a way, and you could like pop up and attack people, and you're like, this is well, what's a submarine? And it's like, so you see all these things. Um, there's another one where it's almost like the pneumatic tubes. They have these little squares at like a park in like Paris. They have these little squares on the table and you see a, a talking, it's supposed to be a talking face on it. And it's like, it's like, you know, you send like an image or a drawing of you to kind of like the pneumatic tubes. But is that not what you and I are doing right now? But it's on Zoom or it's on FaceTime. So Retrofuturism is fascinating in that it's hilariously inaccurate. They thought that every person was going to have a personal blimp and they, sh- they show everyone leaving in the morning to go to work, but they're showing rush hour. Of course, the new electric multi-rotor small vehicles that are being developed right now may well come out that way. But, if they, they can master control outside of individuals because we'd all crash into each other if we were trying to fly around but that's under development now but i'll give you an example of of early technology that that people have totally forgotten about but paris back again at the turn of the 20th century had compressed air pipes that delivered compressed air to houses where instead of electric motors, things were operated by little compressed air turbines. It was not as efficient, obviously, as an electric wire, because you had to have all these little pipes with with all the dangers of leaps and on. Nevertheless, how elegant is that? It's insane. Everything with little tiny air turbines. People do find answers to these things and then upgrade them as they get new technologies. So it's, yeah, it's a, 
it's a proposition of how it's going to look. And we all laugh at how wrong it is. There's no firefighters with steampunk wings, but then we don't laugh at all. If you Google a seven, the evergreen 747 dropping 10,000 gallons of fire retardant on the side of a mountain, like that's insane. And even with the personal blimps, okay. On one hand, it was showing access to uh, flight by the common man, right? Yeah. I don't own a plane, but I can go buy a ticket today and take a taxi to the airport. And it was also showing maybe not air, uh, air travel, but it was showing not partaking in mass transportation by rail or subway, the car, everyone driving their own car, your own sense of autonomy. So in very odd ways, they are so far off the mark and high on how it looks, but the core idea, which really, if you want to boil that down, you could say is the energy available to each person how they can manipulate their environment. Absolutely. So yeah. what they were predicting was an exponential increase in really the kilowatt hours available per person. Yeah, exactly. It, to me, uh, is mind-boggling. It is an absolute measure of, of life as to how much energy is available per person and, and per society. It's why it's going to be so difficult to get a handle on it all with these two simultaneous very large phenomena happening at the same time. The increase in population, not the increase in population, it's actually a decrease in population, but the increase in, in, in life support, if you will, for people at the same time, which takes energy at the same time that we're trying to transform the energy system to one that's friendlier to the environment of the world, really, the whole world. Yeah. Yeah. That's the problem that you and I have been discussing now for several hours. And it's not an easy one to solve. And it's certainly not going to be solved with the green movement taking the position that anything that has to do with nuclear is somehow dangerous and, and bad and deadly and so forth. You know, we've I never quite, I think, in our discussions got at exactly what it was that led to the environmental movement moving from a position at the outset back in the 60s of being pro-nuclear yeah. because it was such a clean source of energy and because it's so compact compared to these diffuse collecting systems that it meant that the environment could be left more pristine into wilderness and so forth, as well as cities and air. There was this strange moral panic around the time when a very famous book was published. Uh, let's see if I can remember the title, uh, The Population Bomb. The guy who wrote it is still alive. He teaches or he's connected to Stanford University. But it said basically that population was going to continue to increase until we reach like 37 or 40 billion people on Earth and millions and millions of people would starve. Among other things, it proposed that because Asia, India already were overpopulated by this theory, that instead of helping them by sending them food, or medicine, we should just let them all die off. That's how cold hearted this proposal, this book was. Everyone believed it for a while, and it really upset everybody. That was just at the time when nuclear power was coming in as a commercial prospect. And the nuclear people said, wait a minute, 
we can give you so much energy that even if the earth is populated with 20 or 30 or 40 billion people, it can support them because of nuclear. So nuclear power became the bête noire of this population explosion idea. And it was that more than anything that led, for example, the uh, president of the Sierra Club at the time to say, if we build nuclear power in California, uh, it's just going to bring a lot of people into California. And we don't want all these people here. We want to keep California pristine and lovely and natural the way it is. So it was that rather than any concern for nuclear waste or nuclear explosions, uh, by uh, which I mean nuclear power plants blowing up. It was that most of all that led to the seemingly eradicable conflict between the environmental movement and nuclear power. Well, population explosion blew away. It didn't happen because the man who was making up this theory, who was an economist, missed what happens when you get development to a certain level, which is people stop feeling they need to have 10 children in order for one to survive all the diseases and catastrophes of childhood in impoverished countries to, to bury their parents, basically. And when that change came, we had what was called the population transition, meaning countries started to reduce their birth rates until now, most of the advanced democracies in the world aren't even reproducing themselves. This, this, this bizarre attack on immigrants in the United States is really remarkable. Sure. We're not reproducing ourselves. We need people to come in from outside. We need some fresh blood. We need some more numbers to keep ourselves going okay. with all of the wonderful things that come from people who are trying well. to I was going to say one thing I always look at is, uh, I mean, I have two friends who are immigrants, Ivan Georgiev, who's a six, four bodybuilder in Las Vegas. He was Mr. Bulgaria. He looks like, he looks like Adonis. You just want to hate him. And then, and then, and then Prince Princey from Kosovo, who, when I first met him in 2014, he was here on a green card. He could barely speak English. Now he's a physical therapist in New York city with, a uh, with two little kids. I look at, th- and I look at my two friends in a, college obi from uh, i think congo and sunyup from uh from seoul both pre-med both went on to become physicians those four friends of mine i don't even look at like we're not replacing ourselves they're the hardest workers i've ever met i was born with a silver spoon in my mouth private school my whole life they got higher grades on the mcat than i did they sit they worked longer hours than i did so i look at it from a very like when i see like the fat american and mcdonald's i go no, we need immigrants. That's the only way this, you have to have, bring in people that are hungry and then they're going to have wealthy kids and then those kids are going to be fat and spoiled. But by then we have a new influx. So the idea that we don't need immigrants, hey, the, per- the reason why we have these corporations that we have is because of hungry immigrants. That's just what it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, even if you look at, most people don't know, but the main source of boxers at the turn of the 20th century was Jewish people recently emigrated from Russia <laughs> because boxing was kind of the lowest level of how you get into a better life. And uh-huh. then it moved, then it moved through, let's see, Italians, Irish. Uh, it's pretty much 
confined to African Americans these days because of their particular circumstance of, of poverty as a result of the old slavery. Uh, I don't know about you, but most of my doctors are Asian because that's somewhere Asian parents really want their children to go and so forth. It's just again and again, you see where immigrants come in and fill in in the spaces that others uh, have left. Yeah. By yeah. the 1930s, my alma mater, Yale, was primarily producing lawyers, not writers and artists and historians or whatever lawyers and, and Wall Street brokers and still is to this day, as far as I know. So again and again, you see this this kind of transition where spaces are filled in of professionals that we need. And that's what that's what immigrants basically do. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 Irish Catholic. <laughs> yeah, like like I'm Irish Catholic. My my dirty pig ancestors were hated. But we came and shoveled a bunch of shit. And now, now, generations later, I'm a gifted white man who grew up in the land of opportunity. Sure. But I mean, that this is what's replenished is you got to bring in that doesn't matter if they're black or Mexican or Korean or whatever. You got to bring in the people that are hungry. Every other nation kind of goes through those cycles where they get rich. You know, the tough times create tough men, tough men create, you know, good times, good times create weak men. We we have a little weird caveat in that we're the melting pot we're, we've kind of stepped outside that cycle where we just continually get to stay at the high we aren't rooted in the land for the last 500 years yeah all of the social class structure that kept everybody in place and to some degree does to this day particularly in england and places like that we came here and got to do whatever we could figure out how to do it. The classic, the Irish are a good example, you know. The first Irish who came here were laborers and criminals. <laughs> and then my first ancestor was a criminal, by the way, I've discovered. He came over before the American Revolution and, and joined the Revolutionary Army so he could get out of being, being in, in, in whatever it's called, locked up for a while. Yeah. First Rhodes in America was a former, was a guy who was transported from England for some criminal behavior. Uh, recently, the Daughters of the American Revolution put up a little, little, little poster to him in, in Missouri where he, where he settled. Anyway, so the Irish, then after they, then they became cops, mm -hmm. a lot of Irish cops. Yeah. They became judges and lawyers. And then uh, I remember so vividly the discussion of an Irish Catholic being a president. That was a big issue with John Kennedy. Blasphemous. Kennedy had to go down to the Southern Baptist Convention and speak to them and tell them that he wasn't going to listen to the Pope. Yeah, well, <laughs> Where, yeah, that was a concern. I mean, it really was, yes. So obviously we need people. Anyway, my point is there was this moral panic about about too many <laughs> not being able to feed ourselves let all the asians and chinese and indians die which was one of the most brutal horrible things i've ever heard let millions of people well of course fortunately they were themselves they weren't just following this guy's orders and they didn't die they turned to guys like norman borlaug the agricultural economist who won a Nobel Peace Prize in America 
for developing new strains of grain, mm -hmm. produce more per, per acre and helped turn the population explosion, helped, helped feed India and China with those new grains. Again, speaking about these changes that come. So it never happened and it's not going to happen. And the, every prediction I've seen says that the population of the world is going to level off at about uh, 10 billion around the beginning of the next century. Mm. 10 billion is a very sustainable number. And if we are steady there, if we, if our births and our deaths roughly match each other, then we'll be able to live a decent life if we can get global warming under control. And that's the other big challenge. And that's where I think our discussion of nuclear energy falls in. Do you want to talk about this new discovery in nuclear fusion? Yeah, yes, please. Well, I was going to say uh, on, a, on a final touching note onto what we were talking about, you could you can only imagine like what is our retro futurism going to be in a hundred years, and I would imagine it's it's either we think capping the human population, and they might be laughing at us and say you did cap it on Earth, but you but you know they didn't consider the United Colonies of Mars. Like it might be something like that where we go, huh? Oh yeah, no, you set up a giant, you know the the Musk going there with the Starship is the new the Nina, the Santa Maria, the Pinto, whatever. We're going we're gonna to establish new colonies there. So yeah, we, we do limit it on Earth to Earth's capacity. And oh. then we kind of, you know, and then Mars is the new Wild West. Like it could be, they're looking back at us right now, our retrofuturism, and they're going, these idiots think that humans were actually going to stop reproducing. And it's like, no, we, we didn't. But in a weird way, we did because we just went to a, a new era. But just a note on that. So, yeah, nuclear fusion. Matching us up with the coherent capacity of wherever planets we decide to live on. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing else makes sense but doing that. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, so beyond nuclear fission, which is what we use to make power today. Nuclear fission takes very heavy elements like uranium, which are really basically unstable because there are so many particles all roiling around in their, their core, their nucleus, and finds ways to split that heavy, unstable core. And because of the way it reconstructs into two particles instead of one, there's a certain amount of energy released, quite a lot, actually. So that's the way that works. And, and it produces a lot of radioactive materials as a result because of this fission process. So there's another way to make energy that so far is only used basically for making hydrogen bombs. And that's called fusion. There you go to the other end of the periodic table. You go to hydrogen and helium, very light elements with almost, in the case of hydrogen, just one particle in the core, a proton, and one electron circulating around that proton. Uh, it turns out that if you can squeeze these very light element atoms together sufficiently, they sometimes will fuse together. And in the case of, let's say, hydrogen, the fusion produces helium because helium is two protons in the core. And so if you squeeze two hydrogen atoms together, you get helium. And in the process, also some energy is released, actually quite a lot for such a small atom. 
The nice thing is you don't have all of the fission products that are left over from nuclear fission. So it's much less dirty radioactively. The problem is in order to get, well, everyone remembers this about science, physics. Opposite charges attract, the same charge repels. So the core of a hydrogen atom is a proton, and if it's stripped of its electron, it's positively charged. You're trying to take a positively charged mm -hmm. proton and push it into a positively charged proton close enough to get them close enough together that they will actually fuse into one new, new nucleus. That's the source of the energy. But everything about them is pushing them apart. So in order to get them together, you have to heat them. The more you heat something, the more active its atoms are. And if you heat it hot enough, and I'm talking about the way the sun works, because fusion is the way the sun works. It's the heating there, the squeeze there is caused by the sheer gravity of all of that matter that's in the sun. Someone released a photograph recently of the earth against the sun. Oh, it's terrifying. The size of a pencil head. I mean, it's just, the, the sun is really a massive amount of gas. And because of that, in its core, things really are squeezed together enough to cause fusion reactions, not only between hydrogen and helium, but all the way out to carbon, yeah. all the way out to the middle of the periodic table. It's an amazing machine producing all this energy. So, so the way that we've tried to develop a controlled thermonuclear, thermo because of all the heat involved, nuclear because it's a nuclear reaction, the way we've tried to create a, uh, a controlled thermonuclear reaction is to find a way to heat a fairly rarefied amount of hydrogen gas hot enough and still contain it within a bottle, if you will. Well, how do you do that? It's way too hot. It would melt anything that touched it. So what we what has been developed is a magnetic bomb. Yeah. Since these are charged particles, they can be they can be contained within a magnetic field. So the the, the classic one is called a tokamak because it was yeah. developed in the old Soviet Union uh, by uh, Sakharov and his colleagues, and it's a donut shaped a torus. A tor it's yeah, tor yeah. Like a donut. The particles revolve around the donut, and the 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 body of the donut is the magnetic field. Then, of course, there's a building around it all to contain it to soak up the heat, use the heat to make steam or whatever we're going to do with the heat. Okay, it's still really hard. It's so hard that after all these years and the. Tokamak was originally, I think, developed in the early 1950s. So it, what is it, almost 80 years later, we're still dealing with trying to, trying to get to the point where you can just break even, where all the energy that has to be used to confine and squeeze this amount of gas uh, can produce fusion reactions that are more than what it took to hold the thing together. And we haven't really gotten there for more than a few fractions of a second yet. And if you're going to have a machine that's going to make electricity, obviously it's going to have to operate on a fairly longer time span than one millionth of a second. So 
that's kind of been the, the problem and it's not been solved. And it's the reason why nuclear fusion has been uh, a joke among scientists as follows. Uh, yeah, it's always 20 years down the road. And, and it really is. They keep building larger and larger tokamak systems. There's a huge new one being built in Europe right now. Mm -hmm. I hope we'll finally get to break even. I mean, we're not talking about getting useful energy. We're talking just about a system that, that actually does for a few seconds what it's supposed to do. Yeah, eater. And now there's a new, there's been a new breakthrough discovery and it could very well lead to to a reactor, a fusion reactor that doesn't have to heat the fuel to millions of degrees, which means they don't have to, to put in all that energy in order to get energy out. Curiously to me, it looks a little bit like nuclear fission. So what they found is there are circumstances using what's called a metal lattice. And a lattice is any kind of screen, uh, those those wooden things that we hang grapes on in our backyards are lattices. Uh, a crossword puzzle is a two-dimensional lattice. So a lattice is an open grid work. And in this case, the lattice would be made out of a particular metal, erbium, which is one of the uh, rare, rare earth's metals in the periodic table, but a pretty common metal. It's not so rare that it like to some of the things that are having problems today with making chips. There's a lot of erbium. It's the 40th most common element on the periodic table. It means more common than iron, more or less common than iron, but more common than gold, for example. Yeah. So erbium in metallic form has is crystalline, and there are tiny little microscopic spaces between the crystals and within the crystals. In those spaces, it turns out it's possible to make these reactions a little easier. You don't have to squeeze the particles together quite as much. There's something about the structure of the lattice that holds them in place that does some other things that I'm just barely beginning to get from reading the papers, which have only been published in the last couple of weeks. But the main point is there may be a way to make fusion reactions work without having to go to these massive confinement systems and this immense amount of energy going into heating the particles. It turns out that under certain physical circumstances in these lattices, it's as if they were already hot. Hmm. One thing that they do that reminded me of fission is they're able to inject neutrons into these nuclear lattices. And the neutron brings in a lot of energy, just as it does with nuclear fission. So here is our old friend, the neutron, the, the particle that weighs about as much as a proton, but is electrically neutral and therefore can be pushed into a core without being re repelled by the electricity in the core. And if you can add neutrons, you can add heat because they carry energy and you can possibly get reactions that are well beyond break even in a system of this kind. Well, it, this is fundamental discovery has just been made. And so we're a long way from getting to the point where it can be turned into a machine. But my point is, you were talking about how you can sort of predict the future. Yeah. See where things today have their analogs in the future. That's one kind of future prediction, but there's another kind that you can't predict. 
my favorite example being nuclear fission. Nobody expected nuclear fission to appear. It was totally unlikely to everyone because they had the wrong model of atom that they were working on. Yeah. They, atoms were the solar systems. Rocks. And Niels Bohr came along and by looking at some of the characteristics of uranium, realized that you could think of a nuclear uranium core as rather more like a, a liquid drop as unstable as a as a water-filled balloon because that's what it always reminds me of just almost ready to fall apart i mean the mystery is why are there only 92 natural elements on earth and the answer is when you get above uranium that just... so unstable it just falls apart so that's why there are only we had to man make these yeah, other uh, yeah like they're not yeah. very stable yeah so, so it's possible Maybe with the, well, the point is nuclear fission was an example of something that that nobody expected because they were thinking about, they, they were looking at the whole problem wrong. That's why everybody was, the scientists were so unhappy when they realized they could have made the discovery. Yeah, it's- um... They had the equipment sitting in their laboratories. They just, they just didn't think about it right. Once they understood that the nucleus was unstable, potentially unstable, then all they had to do was drop in a neutron. And as one of them told me, it was rather as if the moon had struck the earth in terms of the perturbation of the core and the fact that it then would sometimes split. So that's a discovery nobody anticipated. And there are those. And I would argue that this one is one of those. We've all been struggling. You know, the world's been struggling now since since the hydrogen bomb, since since Sakharov invented the tokamak to figure out how to get energy out of a thermonuclear fusion. And here may be a breakthrough. Yeah, it's uh yeah, it's like look it's again the retrofuturism. It's looking at the blimps and going, We'll have bigger blimps, or you see the Wright brothers and you're like, it'll it'll somehow they'll be bigger and bigger paper mache airplanes and it's like, No, 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 we're gonna have jet turbine engines and it's the same thing. It's hydrogen bombs are almost like the steampunk of nuclear fusion. It's like, we're going to use an A-bomb to use the X-ray pulse to compress a thermos bottle of tritium. And we're going to, it's going to be that the shot cab is going to be the size of a warehouse. And that's going to be, then we get better with those and we turn them into into deliverable warheads. But even then it's like, that's not sustainable. And the retrofuturism is, is like, no, no, no. There's an, there's a weird metal lattice that you can do. And it's, it's still the same thing. It's nuclear fusion. Right. It's just not bigger and bigger Zarbombas pressing down into it. It's like, yes and no. They found a place to put it where they could enhance its accessibility to neutrons, basically. Yeah. Little lattice enables it to configure itself in a way that means it doesn't have to be heated so hot. Yeah. That's so simple, but it, isn't something anybody anticipated, I don't think. They were actually, this is actually some NASA scientists who were trying to figure out a way to make a, a, a good source of energy in space. And obviously, oh. if you something smaller, so they were working with this small system that was kind of, kind of tabletop. You know, most of the long-term heat that's produced for things like the landers on Mars comes from a particularly unusual isotope of plutonium, plutonium-238, which is so hot that it, if you ever see a picture of it, it, it's glowing like it's red hot, which it is, from its own energy release. 
that's what's used to the heat is used to make electricity to run to run our probes in places where there isn't enough sunlight to use solar panels of uh they're looking for something to be a little more productive than that yeah my my little bragging right i've interviewed uh rob manning the head of nasa jpl he's in charge of the whole rover program i thought that was kind of cool yeah um I was going to say another maybe example of retrofuturism would be uh, xenon ion thrusters for, uh, I think, New Horizons. The craft was shot at Pluto. What it is, is it's it's the decaying of, of xenon, I think, where they run an electrical current through it and it gives off electrons or something. And the specific impulse is, I think they say it's about the weight of half a sheet of paper on your hand. And it doesn't sound, you go, wait, what? And it's not only does it work, that's how we actually have the fastest traveling uh, spacecraft. So again, you have the goal. Well, what is our goal? The fastest traveling spacecraft. Think back to Project Orion. We're going to launch A-bombs out of the back and it's going (laughs) to go up against a pusher plate. And that's how we'll, okay. No, it's actually they have to use conventional solid and liquid fuel to get up to orbit because the gravity well of Earth is so great that you you can yeah. overcome it. But once you get up, once you escape the uh, the escape velocity of Earth, you just put on this little xenon ion thruster. I mean, it really is. It's the it's 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 like this like <laughs> this little thing you put it on your hand. You go wait what? But if you put that out in zero gravity where there's no there's no wind, there's no air, there's no liquid. And then you leave it running for one, two, five, ten years. That's the point. It's that the, thing gets cooking. Acceleration, continuous acceleration. Yeah, that's you get. That's how you start getting a fastball out there. If you're doing chemical acceleration, you can't carry that much fuel. No, it's it's good that's, for a quick burst. Yeah, you can so, get up there. Yeah, that's been one of the problems with how do you get to Mars and this yeah. discussion of using a nuclear reactor of some kind to power that system. Yeah. It's yeah. it's and then with that we when you want to get to an actual target well then you also have to turn around and decelerate for the second half of the trip. Yeah. But even that but regardless of space travel to me it's just another it's another interesting example of we have a goal or a predi- a prediction we need to get spacecraft going faster if we ever want to reach any target worth seeing at least even pluto just to take pictures well what would it have to be well naturally we'd have to have even stronger rockets and and it's like well no it's actually the exact opposite it's this little tiny glowing blue light that's just a a wisp of a of a piece of paper and you're like wait what and that ends up being not only does it work it's faster than anything so i think it it, to me it's, it's almost like well of course when you say that there's going to be a, an, an erbium, erbium lattice, of course it would be something like that and not not the center of a hydrogen bomb out in the middle of the Pacific. And it's like, no, no, no. It's just this little metal. Of course it would be. Like, it kind of seems the running, it seems to be like the universe's sense of humor is it's never what you think it is. <laughs> well, and of course it wasn't guaranteed, but sure. it turned out. So, yeah. <sighs> Wonderful. Mean, you know, President Reagan always talked about a Star Wars system that would keep all the warheads away. And the reason he did that is because he truly believed that Americans could do anything and that the technology would catch up with the dream. 
Well, some technologies do, some don't. Yeah. So I wouldn't want a bunch of atomic bombs exploded in space above my head. Yeah. Wasn't that a, uh, wasn't that one of the proposals to detonate like a, a bomb per minute per like 10 square miles in the upper atmosphere and it would create like an electronic shield? I think that was one of the early DARPA proposals. Well, that would have burned out every piece of electronics on Earth. I know. It's insane. Um, electromagnetic pulse. Yeah. Yeah. All the car starters. And- <laughs> <laughs> Back in the 18th century. I kind of on the note of uh, mad scientists, and then we'll wrap this one up, is I've, I've read several books on DARPA, but I think maybe my favorite so far is The Imagineers of War by Sharon Weinberger. And uh, there was actually a plan to create this, uh, to create like this 1950s technological level laser to shoot down incoming ICBMs. But the power needed was so great, you couldn't possibly keep this thing running at all times because it would drain the entire US grid. So they actually did the calculation, I'm not making this up, they actually did the calculations. And they realized if they had if they built several caverns under uh one of the great lakes and enough and enough caverns that if they hit a switch if they could drain the great lakes in 15 minutes oh it would create enough electricity because it takes 30 minutes for the missile to get here they're like we'll use the first 15 to charge the laser and then we get one shot Never addressing the fact that what if there's a second missile or a hundredth, but nothing really to do with this conversation. But I, that's one of my favorite factoids in terms of just mad scientists. But uh, Edward Teller's proposal was the, the great mad scientist of the, the story was that we used bomb pumped X-ray lasers. Yeah, well, the Cassaba howitzer. Each one of the machines in orbit would be powered by a hundred bomb. With all of the destruction down below, follow. <sighs> we didn't do that. So we did test some bombs up high yeah. up in, and they produced some bizarre effects. Yeah. It just destroyed the whole layer around the earth, actually, that shields us from, from radiation from the sun. So yeah. these days, you know, the joke before nuclear fission was discovered was, Someday they're going to release the energy from the atom and it's going to blow up the earth. Hitler believed that. It's one of the reasons he didn't work on, didn't support the development of atomic bombs during World War II, even though he had rockets, which would have been perfect to carry the bombs. But he was quite sure that those mad scientists were going to blow up the world someday. And who knows? He might not be wrong. Man, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be a, 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 an almost comical ending to mankind. I'm about to write a book about the uh, big Hadron Collider in Switzerland. Oh, yeah. And and there was actually a lawsuit brought when that thing was being built around 2008 by an American Mm -hmm. who was convinced that if we actually hit these particles together at so close to the speed of light, that you might produce a black hole on Earth and it would... Suck everything in, and we'd all be gone, which is a variation on Hitler's fear about those mad scientists. It was it was ridiculous, and the lawsuit went nowhere. And the people at CERN are saying, "Please don't write about that in your book. That's so dumb." And that was so off course from what we were actually doing. 
but but it was an interesting idea that the man had. Uh, maybe possible under certain circumstances. I don't think it's that it, it it is absurd, but it's not absurd that it was a concern because it might have it might be in making the atomic bomb or, or one of the A bomb books. But wasn't didn't the scientists kind of have a running bet? They're like 50-50 chance this ignites the atmosphere and lights the world it on was, fire. It was concerned. And yeah. tell, uh, Teller brought it up at a famous meeting in the summer of 42. And Hans Bethe, one of the great physicists of the 20th century, Bethe started doing the numbers to see because if that was going to be the case, then that would mean no atomic bombs, which would have been a relief for all of them. Believe me, they would be happy if the physics turned turned out to make it impossible to build these damn things. But what he f discovered is that it cooled off around the edges so quickly that, that there was no way that the heat could propagate out enough to cause reactions in nitrogen in the air, which is to say it was the same problem that we're still dealing with with fusion. <laughs> it's cooling around the outside of the fireball in a sense that that's the problem. And it was fortunately for all of us, it was true with hydrogen bombs. Uh, now we're dealing with it in terms of nuclear fusion and maybe someone's found a way to put it in a, put it in a bucket. We'll see. And I, I do think even though the yeah the running joke is that it's always 20 I heard another great joke about it and it's the reason why fusion's always 40 years around the corner is cuz that's how long a, a government career lasts. <laughs> <laughs> I need 10 more years sir and by the right once you get to the year 40 and they go where is it you go I don't know I'm retiring. <laughs> and then you're at the door. Yeah, there is there is a pattern with government projects particularly aircraft. <clears throat> Excuse me where you sink enough money in it, then the, the argument is, well, you might as well finish the job. You have to build it. Yeah, F-35. That's why these things, cost overruns go so far. Yeah. Um, nice annuity for engineers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're not complaining. We'll get it working soon enough, sir. Don't worry about it. It's, um, you, you, I think, yeah, no, I think that would be a fascinating book if you wrote on the Large Hadron Collider. And I think they're planning one right next to it. I don't know if you've seen that. I think it's called like the ELC or something. Planning another one that will be a hundred miles in <laughs> circumference. Yeah. It's yeah, I know. It's really quite remarkable. It's another twenty billion dollar project. And they're already within a few millionths of a second of the Big Bang in terms mm -hmm. of how far how far back toward the original particle they've been able to get with what they've got. So but every time you increase the energy of colliding these particles, you get new particles. And yeah. the question at this point really is, is that an endless process or is there a limit? Is there, is there, are there some particles that are so fundamental that you can't split them into even smaller particles? I think in a crude way, that's kind of where this is right yeah. now. I think it would, I think we'll probably we'll probably see something that we didn't expect at all. Like maybe they unlock fusion there. Then it has nothing to do with tokamak. It it's it's going to be something where no one was planning on looking, like the large hadron. It's going to be something silly because if it wasn't, we already would have figured it out. It, it's going to be they're going to create, or it's just a giant money laundering program. I don't know. <laughs> well, next, well, of course, national prestige is involved. But let's just say one of the things I don't think people realize is how. Basic scientific research often leads through a series of intermediate engineering stages to valuable products. And I want to give you an example that 
everyone is familiar with at this point in time, at least everyone who's an adult. I knew slightly one of the great physicists of the 20th century, a man named Isidore Rabi. Rabi taught at Columbia University all his life. He also was a consultant on the bomb program. Rabi won the Nobel Prize for working on the magnetic moment of the nucleus of the atom, which I don't even understand. But in order to do that, he developed a machine, uh, a laboratory machine, which ultimately led to the MRI machine. Mm -hmm. MRI uses the magnetic moment of atoms to visualize what's going on inside of our bodies. So every time you take an MRI, you should tip your hat to I.I. Rabi, as he was called. Everyone just called him Rabi. His name was so complicated that they just called him Rabi, and he was an absolutely wonderful guy. Very, very much the, the philosophic and moral center of the whole bomb program and after the war. But this was a work he did purely as pure scientific research that led to this machine that is immensely valuable in helping us today and seeing what's going on inside our bodies without damaging us, without even irradiating us with x-rays. It's uh, a lot in science. I was going to say, it's like the scientist who was working with the microwave and he realized yeah. the chocolate bar in his pocket was melting. Well, radar, microwaves are basically little radars. Yeah, which were used to stop the incoming Luftwaffe. There was famously a big radar up in, I think, Oregon or Washington State that someone walked by and noticed it was it was heating him up. Oh, jeez. Stopped walking in front of this huge radar that looked over the horizon toward the Soviet Union. And, and out of that, they figured out that you could use it to heat stuff. And so here we all are with our little people. Some people call them radars. <laughs> so that's, yeah, so there's there's some, there are, there are uses uses to all of it. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. I had a story. I don't remember what it was. You're too uh, young to forget what you're going to say. Uh, I My excuse is that I, I, I do uh, hours of podcast a day. <laughs> my brain, my brain, it goes out the way. I had on a, a guy earlier. Uh, Peter Dale Scott, yeah, who's ninety three. He wrote a great book, Road to Nine Eleven: Continuity of Government. It's fantastic. And he told me beforehand, he was like, "You have to excuse my memory. I'm ninety three." That guy was listing off names and dates and geopolitical the like the, the southwestern dam in Kazakhstan and how that was. And at the end of it, we stopped recording, and I told him, "I was like, I don't ever want to hear you mention your memory again." I was like, "That was incredible." I'm 31. He's 93. He's, he's lived two of my lives and a third. He li he's lived two of my lives before yeah. I lived mine. Yeah. Never want to hear it again. <laughs> so, and, but, um, Mr. Rhodes, let's wrap this one up. And, um, I, we haven't decided, uh, uh, what the next podcast should be, which one of your books. Do you have anyone in particular? Oh, that's a good question. We've done energy, uh, why they kill. Uh, Einsatz group in those are the only three we've done. Well, I'll let you choose. Oh, sorry, I said I'll let you choose whichever one you want to talk about. I'll get the book and I'll think about it. I'll send okay. you okay. Okay, well, Spanish Civil War might be fun. Which one? The Spanish Civil War. Okay, Hemingway and a lot of other people were there. Speaking of Hemingway, 
I just the other week read a book about uh, Wild Bill Donovan, right? The first head of the, uh, the uh, head of the OSS. There's a story of him going to Paris and meeting up with Hemingway. And they, they hopped in like, like this beautiful, like almost Excalibur Corella de Ville car. And we're speeding through the streets of occupied Paris, both of them with guns, Donovan behind the wheel, Hemingway riding shotgun. And there are soldiers who are like, was that wild Bill? Cause wild Bill Donovan was famous. He was like a general Mattis. They're like, was that wild Bill Donovan and Ernest Hemingway? And apparently they got to the Ritz Carlton. They went in while there were Nazis still in the upper floors. They were like jumping out. They went in and it was Hemingway, Donovan and 65 GIs. And a, a, apparently the, the legend is, is they kicked open the front doors with like their, and they were holding Brownings. And they said to the guy at the front, they said, we need 67 cocktails. And then they went and cleared the building of the Nazis. <laughs> Is there a more mythical life? Something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hemingway participated in the liberation of Paris. Yeah. I was talking to my friend about that the other week, and he was like, what are your goals for the podcast? And I was like, and I told that story, and I was like, I don't know what it is, but I want in a hundred years someone to say, did you know Tommy? And I want the story to be on par with that. Hemingway and the head of the OSS tearing through Paris with rifles and then ordering cocktails at the Ritz. Like that's if I leave any imprint on this earth, I just want there to be a story. I don't even care if it's true about me. You're going to have to go to Ukraine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everyone else is going to Ukraine. Yeah. I'll just, I'll join the party. That's where I'll, yeah. And my parents are going to contact you. (laughs) I was in Ukraine yesterday. Who? Oh no. Oh, okay. I mean, everyone's decided they have to go to Ukraine now. So, well, now, now I can't do it because it seems fantastic. It's kind of, kind of hard on the people who are trying to fight a war to have celebrities wandering around town. Well, I've interviewed sending them money. I've interviewed several refugees. Yeah, I mean, the stories they tell. I mean, they've sent me, they've sent me pictures of when they're fleeing on foot. I mean, one of the ones that's still burning in my mind is. a girl that got separated from her family. And so like overnight she like slept out in a field in her sleeping bag and froze to death. And it's this little girl with like braided pigtails and her body's like ashen and there's snow on it. I still, I still have the picture and I look at it and it's like, it's, it's especially disgusting when you see people going to Ukraine and taking selfies. And it's like, this thing is very real. Yeah, it is real. Yeah. Especially given the scorched earth policy that Putin is following. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. sorry, to, sorry to everybody listening that we ended on such a dark note. Uh, it's uh, well, the next one will be more cheery. Um, I'll text you when this episode's up, Mr. Rhodes. Uh, any closing thoughts? Okay. Do you, you have any closing thoughts? Oh, no. I think we've done multiple <laughs> closing thoughts. <laughs> I think we've we've been wrapping this one up for the last half an hour. All right, everybody. Thank you so much, Mr. Rose. Thank you so much for sending this episode when it's up. The links to the book, obviously, as always, are in the description as well as your website. I highly recommend checking out any of them. Uh, Masters of Death, the Einsatzgruppen, Making of the Atomic Bomb, Dark Sun, Energy, Why They Kill, and I guess next, the Spanish Civil War. So thank you so much, Mr. Rhodes, as always. Thank you.